As I mentioned before, we're continuing our sermon series on the five solas, and today we focus on faith alone. But before we focus on this phrase, faith alone, I think it's important that we truly understand another big biblical word that is associated with it, especially as we've been reading Paul's words to the church in Galatia. And that word is justification. This is what Paul says. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So he repeats this word over and over and over again. But justification is a legal term in which a judge would render the prosecuted acquitted of all guilt. And so the Jewish people firmly believed that by following the laws of Moses, you know them mostly as the Ten Commandments that God had given to them, um, God had given these commandments to Israel as a new way of living. But by following them, they would be acquitted of all guilt. They would be seen as justified before God. Now, I find it easier to understand the word justification by breaking up the word, okay? Justification simply means just as if I'd never sinned, okay? Just as if I had never sinned. So it's like you're perfect, but you're not perfect. Uh, You're just justified, right? And what is going on here, and I think what's really important as we read this message from Paul in Philippians, is the understanding of what it meant to be Jewish and to follow the law. You see, Paul says in Philippians 3, 6, he says that as a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he's giving his resume, he basically says that he was blameless. He says, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul's not saying that he's not a sinner. He knows that he is a sinner. The issue here is that God gave Israel the law. This was a new way of living for them. And if you remember, we well, a while back we did a study of Exodus together. And all of Israel's story is encapsulated in this story of deliverance, of God claiming these people as his own, leading them out of 400 years of slavery, crossing the Red Sea, coming to a new land, and God gives Moses the law. And in giving the law, he says, this is now how you will live as my people. I have saved you. Here is how you will live. This is the holy way to live. These are laws that reflect God's very character. So God gives them this law for two reasons. One, it marks them as who they are, belonging as people of God. And two, it helps them not to sin. (laughs) Okay? Or to deal with sin when they do. So in Israel, there were laws set aside that if one broke the laws, that they could follow these laws that would get them back into the covenant community. So what Paul is saying is, I am faultless and blameless when it comes to the law because I am following the law that God has given me so that when I even mess it up, I come back into God's good graces. I am justified, just as if I had never sinned. This law served as God's revelation to the people of who he was, but also as a boundary marker 
to who they were. It was almost like a wall, so to speak. Everybody on the inside of that wall knew what the law was. They were Jews. They were the Israelites, the people of God. And these were the rules that they were to play by. But everyone on the outside of that wall, they were Gentiles. They were sinners. They did not understand the code of morality that God had given to God's people. So, to be justified by the law is to fully obey the law that God has given, thus to be acquitted of all guilt. But in Galatians, Paul speaks of justification in a different way. He talks of justification by faith in Jesus Christ. This way is inclusive of both Jew and Gentile. It doesn't require you to follow the law in order to be justified. It invites everyone to put their faith and trust and obedience in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Now, are there any folks in here who use a computer on a pretty regular basis at home? If so, just raise your hand for me. Good, good, good. Do any of you use a program called Microsoft Word? Anyone? Okay, good. So maybe I can help you understand it a little differently. When you're in your Microsoft Word um, software and you're writing a letter or you're putting together a paper maybe for school or whatever it is that you're doing, if you look up in the top, there are these bars that go across and it will allow you to align things. You can have the words on the page be aligned to the left. You can align them to the center and you can align them to the right, right? But there's also one more option that you have. Do you know what it is? There's a little button up there, and if you click on it, it says justify. (laughs) Yeah, right? And what does that do? Well, what it does is it takes all these jumbled words on the page, and it aligns them And it aligns the margins so that they all fit like they're supposed to perfectly on the page. They're no longer disjointed or out of alignment. Okay? Now think about that for a moment. Because when Paul speaks of justification, he's not talking about following the law. He's talking about faith in Jesus Christ. So essentially what he's saying is that Jesus is like that justify button in Microsoft Word. Okay? That's a stretch, I know. Jesus is like that. That what Jesus does, our faith in Jesus, takes our messy, jumbled up lives, sinful as they are, and what Jesus does for us aligns them right the way they're supposed to be, and especially right in in terms of the margins, and the margins would be with God. That our relationship with God is right because of what Jesus has done for us. So according to Paul, following the law... Well, that can't do that for you. Only Jesus can. Now, this might seem a little bit foreign to us because we live in a different context and to a different day. And Paul's argument here in Galatians is in relation to something that has recently happened. This is the stuff that you read before the stuff that we read today. You all know Peter. Peter is one of Jesus' most trusted disciples. Peter, James, and John were sort of like the three of the twelve that were closest to Jesus. Well, Peter and Paul had gotten together in a place called Antioch, and there in Antioch, Paul was preaching to the Gentiles. And he was inviting them to be Christian with them. 
And that was a good thing. And while they were there, they were eating together. And Peter and Paul were eating with the Gentiles. And everything was going just fine. But then there were some people who happened to come. And they showed up while they were gathered there. And these people had been sent from another disciple by the name of James, who happened to be Jesus' brother. James sent them to spy on to see what Paul was doing with the Gentiles. And when James showed up, Peter started acting differently. Peter no longer associated with the Gentiles. He no longer ate at the table with them. You see, these particular men that came, they were called Judaizers. And Judaizers were essentially devout Jews. And these devout Jews would allow Gentiles to become Christian. But they said in order to become Christian, you must first become a Jew. Because salvation is from the Jews. So if you were a male, you would be expected to be circumcised because guess what? That's the covenant that God gave to the Jewish people. You must do this if you want to be Christian. Oh, and by the way, if you want to be Christian, you must also adhere to all of the laws, which means that there are certain dietary restrictions and certain ways in which you have to ceremonially wash your hands before you eat. Now, if you were Gentile, you were probably accustomed to enjoying a pig picking every now and then. But if you were a Judaizer, pig pickings were not going to happen because the law says you cannot eat unclean foods. All right? So, Peter starts hanging out with the Judaizers and disassociating himself from the Gentiles, and Paul's a little upset about it. Because for Paul, he sees Peter's actions as hypocritical. Because he and Peter and James and all the other apostles had gathered in Jerusalem and they had had this council there to talk about what it meant to go out and share the gospel with the Gentiles. And in those conversations, they all came to the same agreement that justification was all about faith in Jesus and not about the works of the law. They all agreed on that. And then Paul and them were sent out to go and do what they were to do to share the gospel. Some went to share it with the Jewish people. Some went to share it with the Gentiles. Paul felt called to share it with the Gentiles. So Paul is upset with Peter because he is acting in a different way. It's almost like he had forgotten what they had agreed to. So as you can imagine, this raises all kinds of problems. What was a Gentile supposed to believe when Paul preached one message and Peter preached another? What good was it for the church leadership to be divided on such a central issue, something that was so essential to what the gospel is or isn't? So Paul writes this letter to the churches in Galatia to set the record straight. He says that there's only one true gospel. And that this good news is centered on faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. No other strings attached. But here's the deal. Well, then people begin to say, well, but Paul says the law is not important. Can you believe that? I mean, God gave us the law, and now Paul says we shouldn't follow it. But that's not what Paul said. You've got to remember who Paul is. Paul went by the name Saul before he became a believer in the book of Acts. Saul was a very devout Jew. He was a Pharisaic Jew, which means he was a religious leader. He studied under the man named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was one of the most respected rabbis of his time. 
Paul followed the law to a T, so much so that he is even noted in the book of Acts at the stoning of Stephen because he persecuted Christians who followed Jesus because he believed that Jesus was a fraud and that he had made himself equal with God. And he believed anyone who did that who was not truly God should be stoned. That's what the law says to do. Paul was a serious law abider. You could say he was a lawyer. So Paul is not saying, hey, don't follow the law. It doesn't mean anything anymore. That's not what he's trying to say. He says, hey, the law is a good thing. God gave it to us. We should follow it. But there is a huge difference here. And the difference is the law will not bring about your justification. It will not bring about your salvation. Paul says, because he believed that the law was given by God as a placeholder until Jesus showed up and that the law was no longer the object of one's faith, that Jesus is now the object of your faith, and that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the law. He did everything that the law requires that no other human being can actually do because we're sinful. We break it, but Jesus doesn't. And so when Jesus arrives, the law is now replaced by the law giver, the one who created it and gave it to us. And so we look to Jesus who follows the law to the very end, but we are also led by the Spirit of God who helps us to understand God's will. This doesn't nullify the law. It changes the object of justification and salvation from the law to Jesus. Faith alone. It means that we do not trust in ourselves to accomplish our own justification. We can't make it happen on our own. This is what Jesus does for us. And our faith in him, this is really important, our faith in him is not a work. It's not something that we do. It's a gift. Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he says this, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Both grace and faith are gifts from God. We don't just miraculously decide one day that we're going to believe in Jesus apart from God working within us. Because our natural tendency, if we really believe in original sin, that we're born into sin, is not to choose holiness, it's to do everything God tells us not to do. Right? If you've had children, I remember, um, I remember when I was younger and my first son, Brennan, was born, we had a group of Mormons, two, two fellows, young guys, 19 years old, show up at our house. And they wanted to talk to me about Jesus and about the Book of Mormon. And so I invited them in. This is when I was in seminary, and we talked about Jesus and the Book of Mormon. And then I invited them to come to dinner with us one evening. Because most people just, you know, slam the door and tell them to go away and that sort of thing. And I didn't think that was a Christian thing to do. So I invited them over to dinner. And they came over to dinner, and I'll never forget, Angela and I were there. We're eating and talking and that sort of thing. And Brennan's sitting in his high chair, and he picks up his food and just slings it across the room. He's like, I don't know, eight, nine months old. And I look at them, because Mormons don't believe in original sin, and I said, do you think I taught him how to do that? <laughs> I didn't teach him that. He was born that way. All right? That's not what we do. Um, 
if we believe that we're sinners at birth, we're not going to just miraculously choose Jesus on our own. It's Jesus who reminds us in the Gospel of John. He's speaking to his disciples. He tells them this. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Remember when Jesus chose those first disciples? They were fishermen, I believe. Jesus came to them and called them to follow. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, he says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So even our faith in Jesus, it is a gift from God. And, and what I believe is that God gives us this holy nudge. God is at work within us, moving us so that together as God's people, we can accept that Jesus is Lord in faith. Not of ourselves, not because we're that good, but because God is moving us, holy nudges to be able to claim that for ourselves. As Presbyterians, we believe in this thing called the doctrine of election or predestination, and that's how we understand that. That God is actively at work in us, moving us, nudging us, so that we can accept faith in Jesus Christ for ourselves. Faith alone. But here's the problem. The problem is when we begin to think that Jesus isn't enough. And I want you to hear this because this is really important. And this all goes back to exactly what Paul was dealing with with Peter and the other apostles. Well-intentioned Christians. Some things, I believe, never change. Even today, there are many people who profess that faith in Jesus is central to our faith. That's what we affirm. But then they tack on other stuff like this. Oh, it's faith in Jesus, but you also must have the right theological perspective. Or it's faith in Jesus, but you have to be a part of the right denomination. Which is Presbyterian, right? That is the right one, right? Okay. Or it's faith in Jesus, and you must belong to this particular political party. And here's the biggie right here. Or it's faith in Jesus, and you must be good enough. You must be good enough. That's exactly what Paul was dealing with with the apostles. He says, hey folks, it's not Jesus and be good enough. It's just Jesus. I remember when I was serving at my former congregation in Columbia. I remember having a particular hospital visit with an older member of our church who was a devout member of the congregation, and he was dying from cancer. And as we sat and we talked together, um, things got real. And he began to talk to me about his greatest fear, which was dying. And so I listened to him. And he told me that he was scared to die because he was afraid that he had not done enough. And so I looked him in the eye and I said, Gene, do you, do you have faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And he said, well, of course I do. I always have, but I'm worried that I've not done enough for him. I said, Gene, you can never do enough for him. I could never do 
enough for him. No one can do enough for him. You see, faith is a gift. Salvation is a gift. It can't be earned. That's the beauty of the gospel. We can't do it on our own. God gifts it to us. And I told him, I said, you have absolutely nothing to fear because Jesus is all that you need. And that Jesus was good enough for all of us. In that moment, Gene smiled. And he said, I finally have felt God's peace in dying. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the true gospel. That Jesus is all we need. Faith in Christ is all we need and not something else, especially being good enough. It's just Jesus. So Paul says, if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. What Paul is saying is that this wall that the law established, it has been torn down in Jesus Christ. Faith isn't just a gift for the Jew, it's also for the Gentile, it's for everybody. And being good enough isn't possible for any of us because the law reminds us of that. In fact, if you read the book of Romans, Paul will say, we wouldn't know what sin was apart from the law telling us (laughs) because it tells us what not to do. And so Paul goes on to say, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Faith alone recognizes the true gospel, that we can't earn our salvation that Jesus is taking care of that for us. And faith alone also reminds us that every day is a crucifixion, a dying to our sinful selves so that we might live for Jesus Christ. And while it's true that Jesus died once and for all to rescue and deliver us from our sin and to justify us, it is also true that our faith is more than just professing Jesus is the Messiah and saying, I believe that Jesus is Lord. It also comes with a submission of our life to follow in his way. And we can do this because Christ lives in us, as Paul says. The gift of the Holy Spirit has been given to those who profess Christ as Lord, that we might walk in his way together. So friends, as we worship on this day that we call All Saints Sunday, we remember members of our congregation members of our family, maybe even close friends of ours who have died in the faith. And just like Jean, they are now living witnesses in the kingdom of heaven and testify in what we believe in faith alone, in Jesus alone as the true gospel. In fact, many scholars suggest that Paul's words in verse 20 They can also be read this way. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And honestly, this is a faithful rendering of the verse. 
Because we affirm that our justification, that our salvation is wholly based on Jesus' faithfulness in his obedience to the law to the very end, even giving his life for each and every one of us. So as we gather together on this Lord's day, as we come to a part of our service where we remember our loved ones who have gone before us, who are now part of the great cloud of witnesses who cheer us on in the faith, may we ever be faithful to trust that Jesus is enough for us too. And may we also be ever faithful to share this good news that we've received, that we believe, that we understand to be true, that we hold dear to our heart, with others who believe that Jesus isn't enough. Because that, my friends, is the true gospel, and that is true freedom in Christ. Friends, may it be so this day and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.